0: This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. Washington Wise from Charles Schwab is an original podcast that unpacks the stories making news there. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.
1: I'm Ellen Coleman. I'm a businesswoman, a board member and a believer that we need to create a corporate culture where women and men have equal opportunity and power. We started the Paradigm for Parity Coalition because our daughters faced the same challenges we faced early in our careers. Now we're working with companies to create gender parity in the C-suite because it's time to level that playing field for women in the workplace. This
0: is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger.
2: As the former chair and chief executive officer of DuPont in Wilmington and a former director of GM, Ellen Kuhlman has been named on Forbes' most powerful women list. She explains how, through good instincts and perseverance, she made it to the top of the business ladder. So, Ellen, you said one of your toughest jobs as a young girl was watering plants. How so?
1: Well, it was boring. So you had to go out there, and I would do a quick sprinkle, and my father or mother would come out and say, that's not how you water plants. It takes time. It takes patience. And that was not, patience is not one of my fortes. So I had to learn that in order for the plants to grow and really thrive, you really had to take the time and have the patience to take care of the job of watering them. And so how does that translate to a life
2: lesson, would you say? You
1: no, know, I think it's about... Um, that we expect things just because we say them to be easy to do. And, and, and when you're a leader, you have to bring people with you. You know, I, I, I learned early on that when I said something the 13th time, people started to believe me, and I can't get bored and wander away to a different message. So I really think it is about that persistence and that continuity and that care really do pay off. Can you talk about the value of repetition? So repetition is an opportunity to reinforce. And, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I think one of the most important jobs of a leader is to bring people with them. And it's having a consistent message. But it's doing it in a way that they can hear you, that they can understand you. And so you not only do you need to repeat the same message, but you have to understand what they're hearing. And if the way you're communicating isn't effective, you need to change it up and make it something that they can relate to. So repetition isn't necessarily repeating the same thing over and over. It's taking the same message and crafting it in a way and consistently and over time that people then understand and hopefully embrace it. How do you figure out whether or not they're getting it? You know, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but the easiest way is to listen, is to listen to what questions they're asking, is to ask them what it means for them. What are their concerns? You know, is this something that makes them that they're worried about or excites them? And I think that um, listening a lot more than talking is the best way to get that done.
2: You studied and worked in mostly male-dominated fields. How did you find your voice?
1: You know, I think I found my voice early because I was a tomboy. Um, I was very used to working with men um, in engineering school. I was one of very few number of women. And, you know, these guys were my pals. They were my buddies. We worked together. We studied together. I felt comfortable in that environment, and I think that played over into the work environment where as an engineer and in working for companies like Westinghouse, GE, and DuPont, I, I found in the early days I was one of a very few number of women in my position, and it was comfortable for me. What I didn't realize is I had to make it comfortable for them. How would you do that? Well, you know, it's just by engaging them and talking to them. I, uh, you know... Uh, watching sports on the weekends, reading the sports page. I mean, you know, it sounds – I mean, I do like sports, and um, maybe not all of them, but you you have to be part of the conversation. And back in the 80s, that was probably the easiest way to get to it. You said you never worried about being popular. How come? Because I never was popular, so (laughs) you don't have to worry about it if you're not there. Um, I think it's because at the end of the day, especially in the business environment – I really felt that it was the company, um, you, you had to satisfy the customer in a way that the company succeeded and you needed to have the right people to do that. And sometimes that made, you know, you had to make very hard decisions and it wasn't the easy way or maybe not the popular way. But it was going to affect a different outcome. And at the end of the day, what any company was paying me for was to deliver the results in a way that was consistent with our values and a way that moved the company forward. What's your advice for women who have been told they seem too tough? Well, get used to it because I was told that most of my career. And, you know, having a reputation for being tough isn't a bad thing because people then presume you have high standards And and especially if they understand your motives are to drive the company in the best direction. But I think you have to partner that with a self-awareness of when and where to use it. I think one of the biggest things I learned in my middle career was self-awareness, to understand how other people saw me, viewed me, and how I could use that in terms of engaging them and getting to the answer that we all wanted. How did you figure out how they saw you? Again, a lot of listening, um, you know, a lot of talking to other people, you know, how do they think the group took it? I mean, not making it personal, but making it in the collective. And, you know, it it is a lot more listening than talking. What if you get an answer you don't like? And, you know, so the question is, then what do you do? So do you march ahead? Do you um, stop? And so, there, you know, the interesting thing is it depends on what the issue is. There are some things that are very much worth fighting for. There are other things that are rounding error and don't waste your, you know, energy on it. And I think you have to make those calls. And, you know, I remember once when we were starting a business in safety for for DuPont, um, we, we didn't get it right, the business model right the first time. Or the second time, and we had to st- we had to listen to each other and stop, and say just because we're invested in this doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, and we had to stop and we had to change, and you know we had to listen to to what people were telling us, and since we created it, it was hard for us to do it first, and I think that's where that self awareness comes in. I talk about safety in a bit, but first I want to bring up something you talked about in an
2: Evercore event. You said you realized early on in your career at GE that a man was intentionally trying to sabotage you. How did you find that out?
1: Well, I think that, um, well, first of all, I had, um, you know, co-workers who, you know, played it straight and appreciated that um, that. That transparency is a better way to get things done, a better way to build, you know, a common drive forward than having a lot of subterfuge going on. And so, you know, you find out things like that, and it's tremendously disappointing. It may not be surprising, but it's tremendously disappointing. And then you got to figure out what you're going to do about it. And so, what do you do? Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you you stay and fight. Sometimes you make another choice. And um, and so you know, and and. In this case, you know why I chose to move on, type of thing, and I think that there's they're the hard decisions you have to make. I always felt that um, if I wasn't happy with my job with my career, the only person that could change that was me, and that so I felt like I had the power in the equation, and so and I could use that power of choice than to to either stay and work through it or move on. It, it doesn't mean you're going to like every boss. It doesn't mean you're going to have great relationships with everybody you work with. But I do think that there's, there's an element of choice that many times people give up and they don't need to. How come you think women might give that up? Well, I think they, you know, I think sometimes, and I think it all depends on the personal situation, are they locked to a geography? Mm-hmm. Um, are they a single, you know, person that that's their sole source of income? And, I, I you know, I think it's, it's hard to affect those changes. I mean, and so, you know, good advice. Always update your resume. You know, always be connected into these things. Always feel like, you know, if somebody comes to you with an opportunity, don't say no. You know, you might want to explore it and understand. Now, the grass isn't always greener on the other side, but sometimes I think you have to take the time – just to kind of get that perspective and not assume you're locked in.
2: You said you were leading a successful division at DuPont when the chairman asked you to start a new business. Many people told you not to do it, but you started it anyway. How come?
1: Um, I think it was because I was bored. I I think I'd spent three years in, in the role that I had. And I saw that the next couple of years were, were going to play out pretty much the same. It was a commodity chemical business. It was highly cyclical. And I, I felt I had stopped learning. And, and I have my rule of thumb about any job is that you have to know what you can contribute to make that area successful. But you also have to know what you're going to learn from it and how that job going to develop you as a leader. And I really felt in, in that present position I was in that I had stopped learning. And so this was a risky proposition. It was starting a business from scratch. and um, But, you know, he was a hard man to say no to. He was, you know, uh, you know, he was passionate about the area safety and really felt the company deserved to do something there and felt that I was the person to do it. What do you say to women who want to take a risk, but people are warning them against it? I think they got it. I have a no regrets policy. So at the end of the day... I want to be able to tell myself that whatever decision I made, to take it or to not take it, I'm not going to lament that decision six months down the road. I'm going to put that in the rearview mirror and drive on. And so I think they have to make the decision with whatever information they have and can clean. And then they have to, and if it's not the right decision, they can change it. But they have to drive on and also learn from it. I think that every misstep I've ever made in my career or failure I've had, Uh, The one thing, the most important thing I did was some reflection on how I can use that to become a better leader, to learn from it, to not have that same kind of challenge in the future.
0: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Drive time, gym time, anytime. Podcasts from the Wall Street Journal. Check out all our shows at wsj.com slash podcasts. That's WSJ.com slash podcasts. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal.
2: You were the first woman, woman CEO of DuPont. What's it like to be thought of as someone who broke the glass ceiling?
1: Well, it was humbling. I, you know, I remember having a conversation with my husband um, the night before I was named. And I said, how do I answer the question of why they chose me? And Because you don't want to sit there and sound arrogant, because I'm not. And... Um, and you know and so we we had a good conversation about that but it was it, it was humbling because it was a 200 over 200 year old institution you know grounded in science and invented most of the categories that they operated in and you know you just want to make sure that you're moving it forward and creating it for this new century and, you know, not, not assuming that what existed was what should be. And so there's a – it's, it's a, a, huge, a huge challenge. Is there a lot of pressure
2: to live up to another set of expectations just because you're a woman?
1: You know, I, um, I don't think I, – I think there's a lot of pressure to live up to expectations. Um, I think because I am a woman, it was focused on more by the media. And I don't think it's – I don't think the board or my team, I don't think it was different for them because I was a woman because they all knew me, right? But I do think for the outside world and the media and that's what I don't think there's any way to prepare yourself for.
2: What role did your husband play
1: in your career success? I think he was the one that would hold up the mirror, that when I would come home after a tough week and just be complaining about something because he's somebody I could talk to. And, you know, and he'd let me talk it out. And then he'd sit there and look at me and say, so what are you going to do about it? And, I, you know, and I learned to focus on what I could control because there's so many things in the business world that you cannot control. They just – they're facts that exist, and there's some things you can change. And so in any situation, he had, a, he had always a way of letting me vent it out and then focusing, you know, helping me through asking me questions on focusing on what the real issues were and the real things that I could do to affect a different outcome.
2: What's your advice to women who have a more high-profile career than our husband?
1: Um, you know, you you have to understand. My husband and I started out. We had debt, and that was about it. So we built everything together. So there was none of his or mine. It was always ours, and we kept that. He uh, he had a, a great career in his own. He was a head of head of marketing for Dupont. He did a lot of great things for the company. When I became CEO, his boss came to me and said, "You can't make him quit." I said, "You're talking to the wrong Coolman." Talk to him. And he stayed with the company for three years to finish out the projects that his boss wanted him to do um, while I was CEO. And, And, you know, we figured out a way to get that done. So I just think you have to be honest with each other and talk it out and not let the egos on either side get in the way. You said the
2: problem women have is that we're trying to create a standard definition of what having it all
1: means. What do you mean by that? So I think that what makes me happy and feel fulfilled as a person is different than you, is different than anybody. And so when people say you can't have it all, my answer is, well, how do you know what my all is? You know, and there are, there are certain things that because of the job I had that I couldn't do but there are many things I could do. I made it to most of my kids' sporting events. It was a scheduling issue and we scheduled it that way especially, you know, state championships and things like that. And and you just it, you just had to prioritize and had to figure out that I was leaving at 4, I was going to the game and I'd be back at 5:30. And, you know, and get, and get things done that we needed to. And I think my operating that way was actually freeing for the other people around me to, to do the same thing. What's your
2: advice for women who want to be executives and also moms at the same time?
1: Stop apologizing. You know, I, you know, women constantly say I'm sorry. Many women I know do. And just stop apologizing. I, you know, I didn't ask for permission to go to those sporting events. I just put it on the calendar and went. And I think that you just have to realize that you're going to feel that you're not doing anything great, but you are. And, you know, you've got to make sure that you get help where you need it and that you focus your energies on what's most important to you in that equation. How do we get more women in the C-suite? I think it's about pipeline. And I think that's why one of the reasons why um, I'm working – as a co-chair of Paradigm for Parity and working on gender parity in corporations, you know, it's it's easy to, for a couple of us, came up through DuPont, you know, and became vice presidents, and, and you know, one was a treasurer, one ran a business, I became CEO of the company, but as we looked back... Um, we saw that we weren't creating a pipeline. And we, when I became a CEO, I brought in a new head of HR whose ta- talent development was the expertise, his expertise. And we worked in conjunction to build, um, build pipelines and to go outside and hire women and diversity in at all levels, you know, because we were, they were focused on entry level, great. But we were hiring in in mid-levels and high levels as well. And most of those were white men. We had to make those more diverse and create more of that pipeline so that there were choices, that we had, you know, opportunities for, for women to, to continue to advance in the company. You said when left to their own devices, people limit themselves. How so? Well, I think that, um, you know, it's, I, as I took a look at my leadership, um, you know, there are different ways you can segment it. One was people who played the hand they were dealt. They were limiting themselves to saying, this is the job I was given, and therefore I'm going to optimize this job. And then I had leaders who would see the hand they were dealt and they'd discard a couple of cards, pick a couple of cards up, and they'd create a new hand that was a stronger opportunity for the company. And so and I and I don't know whether it was their, you know, their background, you know, their just their their mindset. But I found it was easier, less um, stressful for people to kind of optimize what they have. There's more stress and there's more risk in changing it up. And so I think you have to create an environment where changing it up, taking that risk is honored. It's expected. And I think you will get more people moving in that direction.
2: When you were CEO of DuPont, the company was in a very public proxy battle with activist investor Nelson Peltz. You said people went through your garbage, ads were taking out in the Wall Street Journal. Did you take all that personally?
1: I didn't read it t- until afterwards. I, you know, my husband would, it would be, we had this, this uh, funny way. I, he'd read the article and I'd say, should I read it? And he'd say, nope, that's <laughs> okay, that's fine. And because um, the people in the office would, would surely tell me what was going on. But, you know, so I segmented it. You know, I, you know, I had to focus on, I was not only running the company, but we were running the proxy fight and you just, you had to build a strong team and, um, and yeah, there was some doubt in there, and there was some reflection. But you can't dwell on it. You've got to say, look, this is the path we're on. You know, we tried to settle, offered in board seats. That wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna uh, satisfy them. So we we continued on the path, and and you know we had a lot of support uh, from our board, uh, tremendous support from our advisors, and I think that was what was helpful.
2: What's your advice to women who are dealing with a contentious time in their career?
1: I think they have to, um, to really make sure they're taking time for themselves. For me, um, it turned out to be every morning when I got up, I worked out. And I was a much saner, calmer person if I had the opportunity to spend 30 minutes on an elliptical than I was if I ha- didn't have that opportunity. So I had to make sure I carved out that time because it made me you know, less stressed. It made me healthier. And, you know, and I think they've got to make sure that they're taking the time to do the things that are going to keep them, keep that, that their, you know, their presence of mind, their awareness high. And for me, that was exercise.
2: You won the battle with Pelts, but a few months later, you stepped down as CEO. What's your advice for women who are trying to decide whether or not to walk away from a position?
1: Well, you know, for me, it, was, it wasn't about me. It was about the company and what was in the best interest of the company at that point in time. And if I was the lightning rod, if, if I was the inhibitor for the company to have, a, um, you know, more of an opportunity to set their own direction, then you got to make that call. And I think that they have to make sure they're talking to their advisors. I think they have to reflect on that and, you know, make the decision that's in the best interest of, of their firm. Have you seen Pelt since that? I have not run into him. What no. would you say if you did? Uh, well, I'd ask him why he didn't call me afterwards. But um, <laughs> um, no, I just, you know, it, it's uh, it is, I hadn't had the opportunity to do that. What's your advice to women
2: facing a quick career transition?
1: You know, I think it is, first of all, it's very uh, disconcerting because you wake up one day and all of a sudden you don't have anything to do. And, uh, and I got a lot of advice from a lot of people who reached out to me and the common advice they gave me was don't take anything on for six months. And it's the right piece of advice. It is really hard to do because the first couple of months... Okay, that's easy. You can enjoy. You can take a vacation, spend time with the kids. Then the kids get worried you're going to put all their attention on them, and they want you to get busy. And then, you know, the phone's ringing a lot in those first couple of months, and you're saying, no, no, no. Then the phone stops ringing because you told them, don't call me until, you know, six months are out. Then you start worrying. You know, maybe I'm not relevant anymore. Maybe I, you know, what, so what should I be doing? But then all of a sudden, the phone starts ringing again. And you've had time to reflect on, do you want another full-time position? Do you want a portfolio? And, you know, and what I found out for me was that, you know, I didn't have any flexibility for 35 years in my life. And that flexibility was really a lot of fun to put together different things that I was passionate about, um, to have the time to spend with my family and friends, and at the same time do things about giving back. So I chose to put together a portfolio. You're a big
2: promoter of science and math. You're also given a prestigious award from Catholic Charities. What do you say to folks who say science and religion don't mix? Oh, I think they mix
1: amazingly well. I mean, certainly there's there's I'm I'm a, I'm a person of faith. I'm a, a believer that you know uh, not everything in this world is explainable, and I think you have to have, uh, at least I need something beyond that in order to to you know kind of that's that's what's right for me. And people make their own choice about that. Um, but I don't think that precludes science. I, I think that science has made amazing strides on protecting people on um, – I mean, just look in, in medicine and look at what happened with – bio. it was happening with biotechnology in, in the medical area. And I think there's a lot of good in science. I think there can be bad in science. But I think there's a lot of good in science that can really help create a stronger world um, you know, and a stronger future for mankind. How has your wealth enabled you to give back? Well, I, th- I think first and foremost, it's about, um, you know, focusing on things where we as a family have a passion. Um, my husband's Native American. Our children are Native American, and they became – they volunteered in their high school years. Uh, the program called Native Vision, which is uh, part of the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. And they really learned a lot about what kids on reservations face and the the absolute challenges. I mean, it just was a big wake-up call for them. And so they became passionate about using our financial resources to help um, in these communities doing things like, you know, before school care, after school, creating some healthier outcomes through the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. And so things like that that, that really create, you know, really help people that just have um, a terrible need uh, around these areas. And so different opportunities like that have come up and, and where we as a family have a lot of passion, we focus our energy. So how do you think Paradigm for Parity is going to help women? I think one of the differences that we found with Paradigm for Parity is number one it starts at the top. It's a CEO commitment to gender parity by twenty thirty. And it's through using a five point action plan. Number one, reduce or eliminate unconscious bias. We are all biased. And so understanding our biases helps us and helps us in our in our work groups. To work together better, to look at how we're building the organization better. Number two is know your numbers. And that's just not how many women are in the organization. How many are you hiring? How many are attriting? How many are you promoting? Therefore, if you're if you want parity but you're only hiring 30 percent women, you're not going to get there. So you have to know your all your numbers. Third is you've got to set an intermediate goal. So some companies have chosen to get thirty percent of women in senior leadership positions by 2020 that are in our groups. We have close to 80 members now. Um, Number four is it's about performance. It's not about FaceTime. So think about taking those breaks that we were talking about earlier. You know, if a woman is on a maternity leave for six months, she comes back, she's working six months, you've got to rate that six months that she was there in her performance. Not, oh, she was gone for a year, she did a great job for a year, so she's average. You have to really take that out of the equation and focus on performance. And lastly, it's about sponsorship. Men have natural sponsorship in the room, women don't. And companies need to create sponsorship for women so they have equal opportunity when it comes to promotion. Time now for your secrets. I'm Ellen Coleman. My money secret is to always have a midterm goal. You have to have a long-term goal and you have a short-term goal, but where do you want to be in five years? And I think not only from a career standpoint, but from a financial standpoint, you should always have that midterm goal because you really want to see the trajectory you're tracking to.
2: This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos with special help from J.R. Whalen. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.
0: What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at Dow Jones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag secrets of wealthy women. The Claude three model family by Anthropic is your one stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash claude.